Thanks, Gary. It, it's always really good to be with all of you, and I'll just apologize up front. I seem to have misplaced part of my voice, so if I sound a little froggy, uh, my apologies. A very wise man once asked me, Chris, do you take God seriously? Yes, I do. Chris, do you take God's word seriously? Yes, I do. Then don't take yourself too seriously. So if I squeak a little bit, I won't take myself too seriously. It's really good to join you in this series in the Gospel of John. It's my favorite gospel. And asking this question, why Jesus? That's a big question. That's certainly one worth asking and one we're going to be further exploring together here this morning. Uh, But just before we get to our text, which is going to be in John chapter 4, has anybody seen the TV show Undercover Boss? Some of you? The premise is essentially in the title, but for those of you who have not seen it, uh, basically a boss from a business disguises themselves and then goes and works at different levels of their company to see how things are operating. And oftentimes, they'll meet a few exceptional employees and then also a few who probably shouldn't be working for anybody. And the best part of the show is at the end when the boss removes their disguise and reveals to the employees just who exactly they are. And it is awesome for the good employees. They get validated and rewarded. There's often tears or hugs. Sometimes there's a substantial raise. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but my favorite part is when the lazy, snotty, foul one gets called out on all their garbage. They get exposed for the way that they treat people. Maybe they take advantage of some system at work, or maybe they're just downright lazy. Often, when the boss was undercover, they were rude or demeaning to the boss without knowing it. They had no idea who they were talking to. It's just nice when the boss comes and makes everything right. It's a little precursor to the very end of the John series. This morning we're going to be in chapter 4 and we're just going to walk through this true story bit by bit. And as we go, we'll be asking why. Why Jesus? What's going on and why? But just before we turn to it, would you join with me as we open our time in prayer? Lord God, we just acknowledge again this morning that when we gather corporately, we are indeed in your presence. It is a good thing for the church to gather. Lord, we glorify you this morning and we pray that as we do so through song and through opening your word that we would be edifying each other. Lord, we just, we glorify you. We thank you for your son. He is the light. And we just ask that Jesus, you would illuminate your word for us this morning, that by your Holy Spirit, you would change our hearts, that we would be transformed more into your likeness for having been here this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible or a device, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 4. If you don't, don't worry. The text will be on the screen. So we will begin in verse 1. Now, when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. 
and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, and a woman from Samaria came to draw water. So we'll just pause there. So if you remember from the Gospel of John thus far, Jesus has been down south in Judea, in Jerusalem. He was cleansing the temple. He was meeting with Nicodemus. And then he's been out in the countryside near the Jordan, baptizing people. And he decides to return to his home in the north, in Galilee, his home province. And notice why we have a clue in the text. It says that Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard about what he was doing. So there may already be some tension mounting between Christ and the Pharisees. So Jesus leaves and heads north to return home. And just for context, and because I love maps, here's a map. So here's what's going on in the text. We have, Jesus has been down here, right, in Jerusalem. That's obviously where he's going to cleanse the temple. He's been meeting with Nicodemus. And he's probably been over here with his disciples near the Jordan. You can see the Jordan running north to south from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. So that's sort of been his base, but his home is in the north in Galilee. So obviously, separating the provinces of Judea and Galilee is Samaria. You'll notice Sychar on the main road between. That makes verse 4 make sense. He has to travel through Samaria to get home. So Judea and Galilee are separated by Samaria. The most straightforward road goes through it to get home. And he arrives at Sychar. It has a spring-fed well just outside the town. And he sits down. Now we'll find out later in the text that the disciples actually carry on into town. They go to get some water. Excuse me, I'm just going to have a cough. <coughs> Fantastic. Bye-bye, froggies. <laughs> so the disciples carry on into town, and Jesus remains outside of town around noon at the well. Now there's a couple of notable things in these first couple verses one of the things we'll notice is that John, the author, intentionally name drops some people from the Old Testament, specifically Jacob, who's one of the ancestors. If you remember from Sunday school, you have Abraham, who has a son Isaac, who has a son Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. There's another name in there, Joseph, 10 of Jacob's sons sell the 11th son, Joseph, into slavery in Egypt. So this is the place where Joseph originally settled, and, or Joseph Jacob originally settled and bought land. And it's probably the place where Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. All of that to say, this place has history with the Jews. It's known to them, but now it's in Samaria. <clears throat> wow. And by Jesus' time, Samaria is kind of a dirty word. The Jews actually despise the Samaritans. They viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds. And that's because uh, the Assyrians had invaded the nation of Israel, and the people in Samaria had actually intermarried with the Assyrians. 
So although they shared the same ancestors, Samaritans were not pure-blooded Jews. They're like half-siblings. And strict Jews wouldn't even enter the province of Samaria. Like the Pharisees on that map before, they would have taken the road over by the Jordan and marched all the way around just to not go inside. Now, I'm fairly sure it's not racism since they probably would have all looked the same, but there's some kind of prejudice going on there. And quite frankly, it's justifiable on the part of the Jews. God had indeed commanded them in his law not to intermarry, to remain set apart for himself, to remain holy. And the Samaritans had disobeyed that. They'd intermarried. And they've actually, the Samaritans had taken the Bible at the time, the Old Testament. They'd taken the first five books, edited them heavily, and then thrown out the rest of the Bible. So they believed very different things about God. So even though they claimed to be worshiping the same God, and they shared the same important ancestors, they believed some fairly different things about the Lord. Needless to say, Jesus is in some hostile territory when he stops to get a drink from Jacob's well. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. I'm just going to have another cough. I apologize about this. I think that was the bullfrog, so hopefully... Now, the text says it's about the sixth hour. For us, that's noon, which is a very strange time to be gathering water in the Middle East. I don't know how many of you have been to the Middle East, but around noon, it's hot as blue blazes out there. Uh, Most people would gather water in the evening when it's cooler out. So why is this woman out here? It's also very likely that there was water closer to her home, i.e. in town, yet she's outside of town. She's here. Now, it could be that this well had a better quality of water. That's possible. It could be that since this is Jacob's well, there was maybe a religious component to drawing water here, sort of like a holy site, that there's a religious component to pulling up the water. That could be. But as we'll find out later in the text, this woman has a bad reputation, and the explanation is probably quite simple. She is coming to the well at the worst possible time on purpose. She chose this time and this place to avoid everyone else. Little does she know she's about to run into Jesus. And actually, there's another interesting thing here in these first six verses. Verse six says, Jesus was wearied from his journey. John, who obviously a disciple of Christ, he would have remembered leaving Jesus at this well and carrying on into town. John is highlighting for us the humanity of Jesus Christ. If you remember way back, the first message in this series, Gary was talking about um, chapter one, and John does this incredible highlight of the divinity of Jesus, that he's fully God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But now look, God is tired. That's impossible. God is infinite and eternal and all-powerful. 
tired? John is helping us notice something that theologians call the hypostatic union. The most basic explanation for the hypostatic union is that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He's both perfectly divine and totally human, having two complete and distinct natures at once. Throughout church history, the church at large has written certain creeds to help us affirm important doctrines together. And one of these creeds is called the Athanasian Creed. And it recognizes this doctrine and affirms it's important by saying this. We Christians believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten in time, before time, and he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, Yet Christ is not two, but one. He's one. However, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one. Certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. Doesn't that make you marvel? This series is called Why Jesus? Well, the hypostatic union is why Jesus has both the capacity and the ability to provide salvation to humanity. This is an absolutely essential part of Christianity. Jesus must be God and he must be man. We hang our hats on this truth in regards to our salvation. Christ could both empathize perfectly with our condition by becoming a man, and he could pay for our sinfulness totally by being fully God. We're going to come back to that truth again at the end, but it's a good reminder for us, and it's, it's good for us to remember both the beauty and the mystery of Jesus. Because it's the same Jesus that's in our text this morning. So let's read on. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman from Samaria for a drink, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. 
And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. We'll pause there again. So the woman comes to get water. Jesus asks her for a drink. Now that's already not necessarily so strange to us, but Jesus has already breached two strict social customs, first by talking to a Samaritan, and second, by talking to a woman. Both of these are no-nos for Jews. And this whole conversation, it's clear that the woman is dealing with it at face value. She's taking Christ's words literally and physically. All the while, Jesus is trying, trying to draw her in to this spiritual conversation. He says, I want a drink. She says, why are you talking to me? If you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for a drink of living water. And how would you give me that? You don't even have a bucket. <laughs> well, the water that you get here, you'll have to keep coming for, but the water that I could give you satisfies forever. Okay, that sounds pretty convenient. I'd like some of your water, please. So you can see Jesus is like piquing her interest. He's pulling at needs that she already has. He's slowly drawing her towards himself. So far, a relatively strange conversation, but the woman is totally unsure of who she is dealing with. So we read on. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Again, we'll take a time out there. You'll see that Jesus, he kind of paws at her personal life. Go get your husband and come back. She gives a half-truth, I don't have a husband, and tries to move on. And then Jesus reveals his supernatural knowledge of her. He knows the depth of her brokenness and sinfulness. He's still talking to her. He knows she's living in active disobedience to God's law in the form of adultery. And he actually points it out. He addresses it. She kind of deflects, right? Oh, well, I see you're a prophet, so let's have a theological debate instead of talking about my personal life. So where should we be worshiping God? And you'll see in the next verses that Jesus actually does engage a little bit with this debate. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit 
and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. We'll take a break there. So at first, Jesus engages with her little theological debate, but probably not how she expected. He starts by telling her that both Jews and Samaritans are wrong, that actually the location of worship is going to very shortly become obsolete. And then he corrects her and says that, no, actually God's salvation is coming from the Jews, not from the Samaritans. And then that the true worshipers of the Father must worship in spirit and in truth, that God is spirit. You'll notice the allusion to the whole trinity being present. God the Father is spirit, and it's the Son who's saying that. Now, the the woman sort of deflects again and says, well, I don't really have a rebuttal, but whenever the Messiah comes, whoever he is, he'll let us know who's right and wrong. And then Jesus shows his hand in as clear terms as possible. Up until this moment, she has no idea who she is talking to. Oh, when the Messiah comes, you are speaking to the Messiah. Jesus tells her why he knows all of this stuff, not just the 30,000 foot theological truth stuff, but also her deep personal stuff. He's the promised one from God. He is the salvation from God. He's the one who's altering the paradigm of worship by revealing the Son and someday soon leaving the Spirit. He is as clear as you can be. Now, if you are a bit of a sports nut like me, you may have noticed a phrase become popular among athletes this year, uh, especially popular in I've noticed it more in football and basketball, but I've seen it a little bit everywhere. You'll see an athlete make a great play, great catch, something, and then they'll look at the camera, they'll do their little, the mean mug, and then they'll say, I'm him. Like, I'm the best, but they say, I'm him. It's weird, I know, but that's what they're doing, okay? This is the ultimate, I'm him. Jesus has the authority to make this claim, and he does it. Now, he doesn't do it from a stage with thousands of people listening. He doesn't do it from a war horse on a battlefield. He doesn't even do it from a pulpit. He does it sitting on the edge of a dusty well, tuckered out from his long journey, and to just one person probably the most unlikely person you'd imagine. I'm him. I am the promised one of God. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did, Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town, and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. 
So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, Yet there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, others have labored, labored, and you have entered into their labor. So the disciples return, and once they get there, the woman leaves. Then Jesus has another one of these, is it physical, is it spiritual, conversations, this time with the disciples, about food. They think he's eaten, but he's telling them about the deep satisfaction, about the fulfillment that comes from doing the will of God, which in this context seems to be about him revealing himself to this Samaritan woman. Meanwhile, the woman goes back into town. You may have noticed that she forgets her water. She's clearly so taken by what's happened, she forgets why she left town in the first place. She goes back and she starts telling her story. Come, you gotta come see this guy. He knows everything about me. Could he be the Messiah? She tells her neighbors the story. Now, we might be tempted to think that the outcome is going to be obvious. Like, this, this is a woman, after all. She's not allowed to testify in court in this culture. Her witness would be inadmissible. They're not going to listen to her. On top of that, this woman specifically, she's got a reputation. She's immoral. She's with a man to whom she isn't married, and she's been with plenty of guys before that. The townspeople, they're gonna ignore her at best, or ridicule her at worst. There is no way that they will honestly consider what she's saying, right? Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you've said that we believe. For now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This morning, I want us to especially focus on these last four verses because I think there is some gold in here for us today. And as Christians, we often, we want to ask big questions. We want to ask, why? Why, Jesus? Like, why would you reveal yourself as the Messiah to these people? Why include them in your story? They're not Jews. And why this sinful woman? Why treat her with such grace and dignity? Why this lady specifically? Why not another one? Why, why God, why would you travel all of these many miles? Why subject yourself to the likeness of a man? Why get dusty and tired and thirsty? And, and once you came, why would you bother telling everyone 
that you're the Christ. Like, we want to ask big questions. We want the answers. And we want to know. Maybe if you're like me, you want to know just for the sake of knowing. Anyone else? It's a really comfortable place to be when you understand but are unaffected. Like, I want to know more about God. I want to know more about Jesus, but man, is it nice if that new knowing doesn't have to lead to any change for me personally. But look at the example we have in the Samaritan woman. She goes from not wanting to be seen by anyone, sneaking out of town at noon to go get water, to marching right back into town and proclaiming to all of her neighbors her testimony of meeting with Jesus. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you've already met with Jesus, you know him, you're committed to him, what can we take away from this story? I think there are a couple fairly cool application points in here, and it, it was neat to hear that elder update from Andreas and Wayne, and especially that component about, man, we want to get beyond these six walls. I'm sure there's more than that in this building, but we want to get out of our walls. We want more people to know about Christ. Well, in these final verses here, there's some application for each of us as to our purpose for being here on earth. And actually, more specifically than that, not just all people's purpose for being on earth in general, which is to glorify God, but your purpose here specifically as somebody who's a partner with Wallenstein Bible Chapel. We've been saying all for Christ, right? And how? Helping people find and follow Jesus. So there are some specifics in here for us in this room today. So let's go back to our text in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And that's our first point. Many will believe because of your testimony to Christ. Being all for Jesus means telling your neighbors what he has done for you. The Apostle Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ. It's our job as professing Christians to tell other people what Jesus has done for us. Maybe you've heard this phrase and you like it. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Have you heard that phrase? Guess what? It is necessary to use words. <laughs> tell people about Jesus. Look at what it leads to. It leads to salvation. That was the difference for some of these Samaritans. Many Samaritans believed people can come to catch a glimpse of Jesus for themselves because of what he's done in you. It may be God's good pleasure to reveal himself to someone through your experience of him. Many will believe because of your testimony to Christ. And then we look at those next three verses. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. 
and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you've said that we believe, for we've heard it for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Many more will believe because of his word. Being all for Jesus means being dedicated to God's word. Now, many Samaritans believed in Jesus solely on the testimony of the woman, but many more believed because of his word. And notice how the word of Christ corroborated the woman's testimony. The townspeople are like, yeah, it all goes together. We can tell that you're telling the truth because of his word. Your testimony can be an effective witness to the gospel, an effective witness. But there's just one perfect witness. The Bible infallibly reveals Jesus to people. We know who he is and what he is like because of his word. Now maybe you're sitting there thinking, but Chris, I'm relatively messed up. I'm a broken person. I'm not ready to tell people what Jesus has done for me because they're just going to point out all the ways that I still don't measure up. Or maybe I don't know God's word well enough yet. Or maybe I don't live in obedience to God's word well enough yet. I don't feel like I'm good enough to be an ambassador. Me too. (laughs) Same boat. But thanks be to God, perfection is not the benchmark for becoming a disciple of Christ. I mean, look at our story this morning. Do you have in your head that after Christ revealed to this woman that he's the Messiah, before she went back to town, she went south to Jerusalem, made all the correct sacrifices in the temple, then went home, either got rid of the guy or married him, confessed every lie she'd ever told to her parents, then showered and put on her Sunday best? No! She marched right back into town wearing what she was wearing when she left. She forgets her bucket and she goes. Ultimately, it isn't her credibility that convinces people that Jesus is God. It's what Jesus has done that convinces people that Jesus is God. Friends, God uses surrender and submission, not control and perfection. Being all for Jesus means giving it all up for the God-man. For Christians, that means every decision is made for the glory of God, not for the glory of ourselves. And we don't try to like sit there and white-knuckle righteousness until we're good enough to act. We also don't sit back passively and decide what is and isn't righteous for ourselves. Jesus has done all of those things. Maybe we should make this our first point because ultimately this is our posture as a disciple. We give ourselves over to Christ, meaning that we glorify him, we obey him, and we testify to his work in our lives. We point people towards his word. And you know what? People will believe. How do you know that, Chris? Because that is how God has been forcefully advancing his kingdom for 2,000 years. 
broken people telling other broken people about a good doctor. Tell your friends. We've got to practice this. I don't know if you're like me. This is uh, easy, but hard. You know what I mean? It's simple. It's not complicated, but it's difficult. So we've got to practice some of the ways you can practice. Tell your kids at the supper table how God impacted your workday. Hard to have those words fall out of your mouth, but man, it's good practice. Then tell your Christian friends what God's been teaching you, how he's been impacting your heart. And practice, tell your neighbors and coworkers about the peace that passes understanding that comes from knowing the love of God for you. This is a part of God's good design for revealing himself to people. Now, are we to be constantly growing in our obedience to him? Of course. And we are to be proclaiming his name even as we grow. Now, it would be one thing to say we got to do these things just because Christ commanded us to do this, which he did. Andreas reminded us of the end of Matthew, go into all the world, preach the gospel, teach them everything Christ commanded, and he's with us even to the end of the age. He did command us to do these things. But guess what? Jesus also did it. He didn't stay distant in heaven. He came and he gave testimony to himself. He came close. He told the world who he was and what he was like. He, Jesus also came and he gave his word. He taught, he spoke, his spirit breathed out all scripture, making it useful to us. And Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. He didn't clamor for control. He gave himself up. He was perfect for us. And it's his sinless life that is credited to our indebted accounts. He pays for us from his own righteousness. This is all about Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ to be your Savior and your Lord, I have some good news for you. The, the first is that you're in the story this morning. You're, you're a little bit like the woman as she comes to get water. You don't know for sure if the person who can rescue your soul, who can make you feel put, put together again, you're not sure if that person exists, if they've come yet. And if that's you this morning, I want you to know there is a God in the universe. And he was on full display in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. He is the only God. He's the only one who satisfies. That's what he offers the woman. He says, there, yeah, you can keep drinking this old water. You can keep searching for significance in your relationships. You can keep living a life apart from God's good commands. But guess what? You're going to stay thirsty. You're going to walk around parched. Jesus is the only living water. And that's what is available to you today. Do you feel tired or thirsty? 
unsure, maybe purposeless, lonely, broken? You ever wonder why? Why can't I fill up? It's, it's Jesus. The reason you don't feel full is because God made you, and more than that, he made you for himself. He's why. Jesus is why. He says, I'm the way, as in, I'm the way out of that feeling. He's saying to you this morning, I'm him. The Bible says that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If Jesus has revealed himself to you this morning, you can call out to him. You can tell him that you believe that he's God, that you're committing yourself to him as God. And I promise you that what waits for you is not just life. It's life to the fullest. It's a life so satisfying, you will leave your old life behind. Once you meet him and he reveals himself to you, you'll forget your old jug at the well. <laughs> you'll be so taken, so captured that your story of him will just spill out of you. Now, for those of us who've known Christ for a long time, sometimes that initial excitement that comes from God revealing himself to you, maybe it's waned a little bit. Maybe you're not quite as giddy to tell the news as maybe you once were. Maybe you haven't felt that in a while. Totally understand. Sometimes we need to recapture the wonder of Jesus Christ. And I think the question, why Jesus, is a great way to help us to start recapturing that wonder. Like, why Jesus? Why choose me? Why rescue me? Why save me? Why restore me? I think we as mature believers need to once again marvel at the God who was willing to come and get dusty and tired and thirsty just to relate to us who experienced hurt and grief and, and death who was a man here on earth and who bore your sins and mine in his body on the cross. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the only means of salvation. We declare that again today. There's no other name by which we can be saved. Let's pray together as we close. Lord Jesus, we do cry out to you this morning. Once again, Lord, we offer ourselves to you. Lord, I trust that if there's someone here this morning that you've been impressing on their heart of the reality of your being, that they would call out to you. Jesus, it is your very nature to be the Savior. And for those of us who know and love you, Lord, we thank you for that salvation. We're reminded this morning of your saving work on our behalf, and we love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.